Our reading today comes from Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. But the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves." Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and what we learn from it. Father, thank you for difficult books like Habakkuk, and we pray by your Holy Spirit that we would learn from it, uh, learn how to accept by faith the tough answers that you so often have for us in this life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, C.S. Lewis writes, an impersonal God, well and good, a subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, Better still, a formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, that's quite another matter. There comes a moment, he continues, when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly, Was that a real footstep in the hole? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant to do that. We're still supposing he has found us. That's from his book, Miracles, about the moment when the living God actually shows up and meets with people who have been seeking him. It's, it's chilling, isn't it? Well, much like one uh, that Lewis refers to here, Habakkuk too went in search for God, and when he actually found him, 
and heard what he had to say, I'm sure he was filled to the core of his little being with terror. Habakkuk lived and prophesied in a turbulent time for Judah. You see, after the reign of the great King David and his son Solomon, the nation they had carved out was broken in two. The northern kingdom, the larger of the two, retained the name Israel. The smaller southern kingdom took the name Judah. And Habakkuk was from Judah. And he prophesied during the reign of King Jehoiakim, who 2 Kings 23 tells us did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And in Bible times, where the king went, so the nation followed. And Habakkuk has been watching his nation, watching his people become wicked and more unrighteous than righteous. He sees bad people winning and good people losing and wonders, where is God in all of this? And his, his confusion, his frustration, his heartache embolden him to seek God out, put him in the hot seat and ask some pretty direct questions. And the cool, exciting thing about this little book is that Habakkuk actually gets some answers. God actually shows up, and we get to listen in on an entire conversation. And this conversation, it's, it's both exciting and challenging for us as it deals with the age-old but constantly relevant question, how can we, believers, persist in our faith when we face times, when we face situations that seem to deny God's goodness and power. And as we look at just this first half of this first chapter of, of Habakkuk, I want to highlight just two things that should stand out to us as we study the first part of this chapter. Firstly, we can follow Habakkuk's lead. And we can ask tough questions of God. You know, though we have no right as sinful people, by His grace, God allows us and perhaps even invites us to do this. He knows that we're just dust. But the second thing is this. We need to be prepared for the often terrifying answers of the living God who may not give the answers you want, who is not accountable to you. And as Christians or as perhaps those who are wanting to learn more about what it is to follow the man Jesus, we need to be able to square with this notion and decide whether we're still able to trust that though he may be terrifying, he is still utterly, purely good. Read verses 1 to 2 with me. If you've got your Bibles or your devices open, I encourage you to do that. Verses 1 to 2, the oracle of Habakkuk, the prophet. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you do not save? Some difficult questions right off the bat. He's not messing around. He's a man of God, but while he holds God as being holy, righteous, sovereign, he knows that he can still approach God honestly and openly. 
I mean, what would be the point of hiding our true feelings and our true thoughts from God when He already knows them, right? Continue with me, verses 3 through 4. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. You can... You can hear the desperation dripping from his questions. He comes to God not not to question his authority, and, and that's a crucial distinction to make. Rather, it's because of his trust in God that he goes to God. Amen? We can learn a lot from this as Christians, can't we? So often in our personal lives, we go to God to pour out our hearts and our, our burdens before him, but we're not going to him because we don't believe. We're there on our knees because we do. You know, even even if our prayer is an echo of the grieving father before Jesus saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. All all we need, as Jesus says, is, is faith the size of a mustard seed because, because he does hear us. It's, it's, not the, it's not the size of our faith that counts, is it? It's the, it's the one who we're putting our faith in. And so Habakkuk goes to God with questions, not because he doesn't b- believe, but because he does. Not because he doubts God's size and authority, but because he knows that God is the one with the answers to all his questions. And so when we reflect on our own lives and our own failures our own weaknesses, our own doubts, our own confusion. You know, when we look at the world around us and we observe it and we see its brokenness, its wretchedness, we must go to God because there is chaos. And there is right and wrong, isn't there? We cannot deny that. We must go to God There is such a good thing as good and evil. You know, despite what the world says with its erroneous idea of of false tolerance. Last year, I I reread The Lord of the Rings. If you've not done this in a while or never have, I really encourage you to. The books have such a wonderful golden nuggets that the films have left out. And one of these was a conversation between Aragorn and Eomer and the latter is distressed at the, at the state of Middle-earth and, and the state of his own nation as well. And he says, he says to Aragorn, he says, the world has gone strange. How, how many of us today, you know, we can, we can say that. <laughs> the world has gone strange. How is man to judge what to do in such times? Perhaps you've asked this question in your own way recently. Perhaps it's when you look at the events of the world or perhaps it's when you look at the state of your own personal life. You ask this question. And to this, Aragorn replies, as he has ever judged. Good and evil have not changed since yesteryear and nor are they one thing. 
His point is that good and evil still exist, just as it did in ancient days. You know, though the world tries to muddy the waters and deny the difference, good and evil still exist, as it did in Habakkuk's day, and they still exist today. And just as God never changes, perhaps because God never changes, nor does good change, and nor does evil change, and they are not one thing. And if we believe in a God who is both all-powerful and all-good, then like Habakkuk, we'll look around us and, 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 and we won't be able to do anything else but fall to our knees before this God and ask the questions that Habakkuk is asking. Well, unique to the book of Habakkuk, we get to hear the Lord's reply. What would you do, I wonder, if you cried out to God one day and rather than quiet silence greeting you, an answer is given, unexpected, shocking. Read verse 5 with me. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, says God, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. How cool is that? In response, God tells Habakkuk that he's about to do something amazing, something new, something that Habakkuk wouldn't believe if anyone else were to tell him. But I don't know. I don't know if this is exactly a comforting answer that Habakkuk was looking for. Consider what he knows of God and and when God chooses to confront evil. You know, Habakkuk knew Yahweh who, when he saw the evil world, sent a global flood, an extinction-level event to physically wipe sin off the face of the earth. He knew the God who, when confronted by wickedness, unleashed merciless plagues upon Egypt. He knew the God who defeated the prophets of Baal with fire from heaven. What new, what, what amazing thing could God possibly have to offer now? And how terrifying was it going to be? Read verse 6 with me. For behold, I am rising up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, I am rising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. And then in verse 7, they are dreaded, they are fearsome. Verse 8, they fly like an eagle, swift to devour. Verse 9, they gather captives like sand. Verse 10, at kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. And finally, in verse 11, they're guilty men whose own might is their God. Yeah, Habakkuk was amazed. And the rest of the book unfolds his shocked response. All of Judah would stand in awe at this thing that God would do. And no, I don't think Habakkuk would have believed it if anyone else had told him that God would ever do such a thing. 
he would witness a series of unbelievable events. You know, their own independent, prosperous kingdom would suddenly become a vassal state. Egypt, a world power for centuries, would be crushed overnight. Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, would be so completely ransacked that people would forget where it had ever been. And the Babylonians, these Chaldeans, would rise to become the superpower of the earth. It would be offensive for God to choose this path. How could a holy, righteous God choose an unholy and wicked people, even worse than Judah was, to to punish them? Perhaps you've asked yourself the same thing. As you read Scripture and you see that God is a God free from boundaries, Could could, could a holy God really raise up evil as a tool to use by his own hand? It's not at all what Habakkuk was hoping to hear. And he's instantly confronted by a living God who who has no borders, a God beyond our sensibilities, who doesn't fit into any, any box that we wish to create for him. Habakkuk was reminded with a shock that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, does not adhere to our personal thoughts and feelings and is not safe. And the question rises in his mind, as I hope it rises in yours. Could he still trust this God? Despite his plans, despite appearances, could he still trust that this God, who would do such a thing, who was so dangerous and unsafe, that this God was still good? It's a question we're often confronted with, isn't it? You know, in the tumults and and the wilderness of our own lives. You know, perhaps COVID last year has hit you harder than anything has before. There's been little comfort for you, and, and this weekend gives you no signs of relief coming. Perhaps you've lost loved ones recently and are struggling to get your bearing with your, without their presence, struggling to reconcile with a God who would allow this loss, would take them from you. Maybe your career hasn't panned out the way you'd always imagined it. And you're in the wilderness of, of doubt and fear about what to do next, how to move forward, which direction to go. And facing these desperate needs in these storms, looking down the barrel as it were, you've been crying out to God, seeking answers, seeking comfort, seeking hope. How do we stand before the God whose ways we do not understand? Do we forsake Him and depend as best we can on ourselves? Or do we go to Him, run to Him, pursue Him, rest in Him instead? God's answer is here. Far from giving comfort, 
far from granting any real deep understanding that would make faith unnecessary, calls for an even stronger persevering faith, doesn't it? You know, to the person of faith kneeling humbly before this lofty God, there appears a vision of of God striding out as He has always done ahead of us for the salvation of His people. Faith knows that in Him alone there is life. And we're called to live by faith, aren't we? If you at home continue on to read Habakkuk chapter 2, you'll see one of the most quoted verses of Scripture in verse 4, which ends, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And then the author of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. You know, in a world that scoffs at faith or at best treats it like a self-help tool, Christians are commanded to live by it, to train ourselves in it, and to nurture and grow it. I wonder how you've been doing with that task lately. Do we read our Bibles to equip and arm ourselves with knowledge and understanding, allowing the Holy Spirit to reveal new and wonderful and challenging things to us? Do we read it in order to meet and get to know the God of the Bible, the living God, the one who we see with every page turned and every supernatural encounter it depicts certainly isn't safe and rarely gives safe answers, but as we keep reading also shows us the one who is good and faithful to his people even when we are faithless. Do we read it to get to know Jesus, to learn how to trust and obey him and lean on him when he says, no matter where we might find ourselves, no matter what circumstances we're facing, no matter how silent God might seem, that he will never leave us or forsake us? I hope so, because if we're meant to live by faith, it's not a faith we can make up. It's not a faith where we can sift through our Bibles and cherry-pick the things that best suit us and our circumstances. This is to make little gods for ourselves. This is to play burglars and dabble in religion, as C.S. Lewis would say. This is, this is idolatry. The true, born-again, spirit-filled believer is called to do more. Ours is a faith based and founded upon, centered on, Jesus He is the author and perfecter of our faith, and he demands our whole lives. In Habakkuk, we're being asked whether we're content to lay our hand in God's and walk with him toward his goal, perhaps at the expense of our own. You know, if we only pray, if we only read our Bibles, if we only gather with God's people on Sundays, then Satan will claim every other day. A.W. Tozer wrote, if you don't worship God seven days a week, then you don't worship him one day a week. There is no such thing known in heaven as Sunday worship, unless it's accompanied by Monday worship and Tuesday worship and so on. 
So as we wrap up, as we, as we struggle along our life's journey and as we find ourselves crying out to God again and again in our troubles, saying, where are you? What will you do? Paul in Acts chapter 13 points to Jesus and quotes Habakkuk saying, watch and be utterly amazed. In Jesus, we see again that God rarely takes the safe, easy route. He sends his own son to us to experience the tumult, to to experience the crashing waves of life's ups and downs and, and the violence, the injustice, and the ungodliness of the world. He knows the kinds of things that brings us to our knees and draws tears to our eyes, the kinds of suffering that makes men cry out, why have you forsaken me? And with his death on the cross in our place for our sins, he proves the ultimate goodness of God and offers an invitation to be with him. And this invitation is that though we may not have much hope for our lives in this world, we cling to the hope of our lives in the next, in heaven where Jesus is lifted high on his great white throne, where angels sing unceasingly forever, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, where we'll be given crowns only to cast them down in worship, and, and he'll approach us and draw near to us and whisper, well done, good and faithful servant, and we'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so with this hope that we have, may we pray today with renewed vigor as we enter into another turbulent year. May we pray that he will preserve our faith no matter our situations, being reminded as Habakkuk was that God does have a plan and it will be carried out, and it will fill our souls with awe and wonder at Him, and may we come to the end of all things more than conquerors. If we can but accept His difficult answers by faith. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for speaking to us, and we do trust, Lord, that you have a word for each of us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would soften our hearts, that you would convict us, that you would comfort us, and that you would indeed preserve our faith. May we live this life wholly devoted to you. And may we cling to our hope of life in the next. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.